0: If you shop online, you have to try Be Frugal Frugal lets you earn cash back from over 5,000 stores, including Amazon, Walmart, Target, Macy's, and more. Simply find the online store, click the link on BeFrugal.com to activate cash back and complete your purchase. You'll earn the highest cash back rate, guaranteed up to 40%, then get your cash back earnings via PayPal, direct deposit, gift card, or check. Visit BeFrugal.com slash best and get a $10 bonus when you join for free. And now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the gendered nature of anger and how the anger of women is feared as a potentially revolutionary force. Clips today come from Start Making Sense, In Deep with Angie Coiro, Past Present, The Ezra Klein Show, In the Thick, Edge of Sports Radio, and The Daily Show.
1: Her new book is the political book of the year, at least for me. It's called Good and Mad, the Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. Rebecca Traister, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me, John. The New York Times page one headline about Brett Kavanaugh's testimony last Thursday read, quote, a nominee is rescued by a display of rage. I wonder if you have any comment on that.
2: Yeah, one of the things I write about in the book is whose rage is taken seriously in America as politically valid, politically consequential, as sort of reflexively righteous. And the argument I make in the book, and of course, I finished writing this book months before the Kavanaugh hearings, but I write about how in this country, the kind of political rage that we do kind of take reflexively seriously is the rage of powerful white men. Our founding kind of lullaby is the founder's rage, right? It's the, the, the anger that undergirded the American revolution, give me liberty or give me death, live free or die the fury that was our national founding. And of course the thing that happened then is that those founders who were so angry about being taxed and policed without being represented in government, they, they, made their angry split from england and then in creating a new nation they built the nation on on lack of representation on the kind of inequities that they were so righteously objecting to enslaving african americans wiping out the native population leaving women with all kinds of barriers to full legal economic political participation when the rage of those who were left out of the nation's founding and it's and it's promise of equal representation, have expressed rage that in many ways echoed the founding rage. Many of the people who have objected from the early labor movement, the Lowell Mill Girls striking, talked about their anger at poor working conditions, borrowing the language and ideas from the founders. Mum Bet, an enslaved woman who would later be known as Elizabeth Freeman in, in the 18th century in Massachusetts, lived in the home of a, of an active revolutionary politician she heard the revolutionary rhetoric in her home and she applied it to her own situation petition for her freedom. Um, her case became the basis for the abolition of slavery in Massachusetts in 1783. The, the actual angry rhetoric of having been unjustly impinged upon about having faced injustice is, is rhetoric that has been voiced by many people who are not powerful white men, but often that is disregarded marginalized, made to sound hysterical or animalistic or infantile or threatening depending on who it's coming from. And so in this past couple of weeks during the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, we've seen all kinds of examples of that. Uh, The rage of the powerful white man, not just Kavanaugh, but Lindsey Graham, Donald Trump, the members of the Republican Party, all of them powerful white men fundamentally representing the interests of a white capitalist patriarchy. That rage worked to their benefit. Brett Kavanaugh could go into that hearing room and rage about the injustice that was being done to him. They could talk about the mob. Donald Trump could apologize for the pain that has been inflicted on his family. There was this notion that he had been done wrong, and the fact that he was moved to to angry and passionate expression only underscored the seriousness of how how poorly he'd been treated.
1: So Kavanaugh, we could say, performed anger. Dr. Ford took the opposite course A lot of people thought she was very effective at doing that. What do you think?
2: Well, she was, but that's in part because of the way that we're conditioned to hear and respond to anger differently when it comes from different people. So in Kavanaugh's case, that anger, his raised tones and the snarling and fury could be used to amplify how serious he was to to make his point stronger. Had Christine Blasey Ford employed that kind of anger, yelling or making faces, talking back to people, it would have badly undermined her point. Women aren't permitted to use anger as a weapon to amplify their voices or their points of view. Instead, we're told that anger, if we express ourselves angrily, it will detract from the seriousness with which we are taken. And so she she performed in a voice and in a mode that was the acceptable mode for women, for white middle class women. She was... Polite, she was deferential, solicitous, quiet, measured, rational. She called on science. She didn't express any fury. Um, she often talked about how she just wanted to be collegial. And that was the mode of expression that she was permitted if she wanted to be taken seriously, and she did it.
1: Dr. Ford wasn't angry, but there were some other people who were angry. The two women in the elevator, to start with.
2: The two women in the elevator, all the protesters who'd taken over Washington. And, it had, and that protest movement had started before before Dr. Ford's allegations became known to the public and those protesters in the Senate gallery yelling about abortion and health care repeal in the first round of hearings for Brett Kavanaugh were referred to by members of the Senate Judiciary Committee as loudmouths mouths and um, experiencing hysteria. That was Orrin Hatch and, and Ben Sass respectively. They were kind of made made out to be a nuisance. Orrin Hatch said we shouldn't have to put up with this about the protesters who were screaming during Kavanaugh's initial hearings. And then, of course, after the assault allegations were made, there was a whole new round and a new population of protesters who flooded the Capitol, telling their stories, many of them telling really difficult stories of trauma and assault, including the two women, Ana Maria Archila and Maria Gallagher, who confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator. There were other... Survivors, Alison Turcos, um, Jess Morales, who confronted Ted Cruz, Alison Turcos confronted Joe Manchin. There were women who yelled throughout the vote, and they were referred to by one Fox News host as screaming animals. And then, of course, Donald Trump and Marco Rubio have referred to them as a mob, an angry mob. Trump compared them to arsonists. That's a very clear view that we get of how angry expression can be used against women, in this case, the protesters. But anger can be used for a powerful white man, in this case, Brett Kavanaugh, and his confirmation to the Supreme Court for a lifetime
1: appointment. One last thing I'd like to talk just for a minute about, tears of rage. You have this mm-hmm. wonderful part of your book where you quote an older woman telling you, never let them see you crying. What was that about?
2: Well, I think that one of the most profoundly misunderstood expressions of rage in women is tears because so many other open expressions of fury are discouraged or discounted. Many of us sort of instinctively and in part because it's so frustrating to not be able to say, the ways we're angry in an angry way because we know that it will somehow redound negatively against us. I think many of us instinctively turn to tears and especially there's, there's a racial component here. I think this is especially true if you're a white woman um, who within a white patriarchy, people are more, ready to envision and cast as traditionally feminine and vulnerable uh, and to whom the power structure is more likely to extend sympathy or imagined offers of protection i think that tears can be read as vulnerability and and make women's dissatisfaction more appealing and so tears are often understood as a sign of weakness or simple grief and they very often are grief but very often they're blind rage And I don't think that that is widely understood enough. And what my boss once said to me, she pulled me aside and she said, I was just crying at work. And this was not somebody with whom I had a close relationship. She pulled me aside and sort of said, don't let them see you crying. They don't know you're furious. They think that you're upset and they'll be pleased that they got to you.
3: I do want to start with the inevitable. Granted everything that you've covered in your book, what were some of your thoughts as you
4: watched the Kavanaugh hearing and as you
3: watched him express all of his anger?
4: So I was sad and angry and depressed. I I also laughed because I'd never ever thought I'd see a day when a man would use calendaring (laughs) to signal filial legacy. Yeah. So as he's crying, a very feminine thing, he's saying, but I'm the son of a father and I admire my father and you men need to toe the patriarchal line, even though I'm crying and I might be a little boy who needs the care of the white women around me. That's what I was thinking.
3: And what were you thinking in terms of how, and I I do not want to comment on Dr. Ford's presentation herself, and I don't want to make any assumptions about what was going on in her head. Yeah. But watching her, and watching how nice she was, and how she was smiling through some of her testimony, put me in mind of a lot of the characteristics that you display in the book.
4: When we yeah. see a
3: woman recounting a trauma, and they're so damn nice, what is going so on? Oh, deferential.
4: differential. Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think that most women would recognize the tightrope she was walking on, right? Which is, be assertive, but not too assertive. Be kind, but definitely not angry, even though you need to act in self-defense. And what struck me about what she was doing throughout was she kept adjusting, right? She kept she kept fixing her mic and she kept saying, well, does it work for you? And that actually maybe made me sadder than almost anything else Mm -hmm. because she was actually the only person in the room that should have been able to express indignation and anger at her humiliation and at the trauma that she was being put through again. And yet she was the person least uh, able to do that. And so... She pretty much performed, and I think that's the right word, in a way that many women are socialized to perform in those situations, not because we irrationally think we're going to be punished, Mm -hmm. but because we will be punished, right? And so she happens to be a white woman, which brings with it all kinds of privileges. A black woman in that situation, Anita Hill 30 years ago, is in, in an even more difficult perspective, like a more difficult situation just by being, uh, alive and speaking, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think that her, um, everything from her posture to the cadence of her voice really addressed the double standard in their behavior. Mm-hmm. There was, it was quite shocking actually to see it play out the way it did because he, he arrived in an indignant, aggressive, pugnacious, uh, hyper-masculine sort of, I'm angry and I get to be angry. And I think it just showed how anger is a social entitlement, mm-hmm. right? He gets to be angry and he gets to exercise that emotion without it degrading anybody's sense of his rationality or logic. Whereas for women, we're taught to be um, emotional in terms of regulating our emotions and other people's emotions and our linked with emotionality, but then the emotionality is weaponized against us mm-hmm. because there's the assumption that we are not rational and that we're not logical and that we're not thinking clearly.
3: Well, in fact, to pick that up, what would she, in the classic scenario, if she had in front of the public, in front of the cameras, right. in front of so many men, if she had come out and been frankly right. angry, what was she risking?
4: Her Well, first of all, she was definitely risking her credibility, right? We, we know that there is a credibility gap that exists from many studies. It shows that men are assumed to be more authoritative, more knowledgeable. They uh, People have more confidence in them when they give expert testimony on complicated issues. So that already exists as a gap in our lives. And so we often have to bend over backwards to prove ourselves, right? I mean, I have 70 pages of citations in the book, and that's basically because I don't want to argue with awful people all day. They can go argue with the CDC or the United Nations or they'll
3: argue, they'll with, you argue anyway. with me
4: anyway, right? Yeah. But, but in fact, we have to go out of our way to prove and prove and prove and prove what we say. And at no point in life, do we actually have the luxury or privilege of just saying what we know, Mm -hmm. and having what we know be taken seriously. And so all of her composure was really calibrated to trying to buttress her credibility, whereas he could lose his composure. And still maintain in some circles credibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and we know from many other studies that indeed when men display anger, maybe in a courtroom, for example, there was a recent study uh, done about prosecutors in courtrooms that accru- they they accrue power. So, an angry man will convince people to change their minds, whereas a woman who displays anger, the opposite happens. She actually becomes Less powerful, Mm -hmm. and people think she's less credible, less trustworthy. And um, it's not because anything about what she knew changed. It's because we have these stereotypes about gender and ethnicity.
3: When a woman does get angry, look at her face and say she's angry. When a woman is not angry, when her face is in a neutral facial set, you have science about how that is interpreted and how a man's face is interpreted differently. We don't read men and women's expressions the same way.
4: No, we don't. I mean, women's faces are expected to be pleasing and pleasant, and so we're supposed to smile. And actually, like black people, we're supposed to smile in order to signal that we're not happy, we're not unhappy with the circumstances we find ourselves in, mm-hmm. right? And I, I don't, and I don't know. I, I've been told to smile. Probably at least once a week my entire life by a man, almost always, very often by a man I don't know, and so it's really irritating to me when someone tells me to smile, and um, so we, we sort of call a woman's neutral face a resting bitch face, <laughs> and um, I even found surgery that was being advertised as a way to fix resting bitch face. <laughs>
3: A permanently installed, permanently installed.
4: you know, but actually, it's really kind of an irony, because in fact, men's faces at rest are bitchy. <laughs> and we know that because of like a lot of work that's been done about how we attribute emotion to gender neutral faces. And um, if a if a face is a gender neutral face, but has an expression that we tend to associate with anger, most people will say it's a man's face. And if a man's face is at rest, it is demonstrably more negative looking than a woman's face at rest.
0: I don't need to tell you that 2018 has been a difficult year for human rights. But have you ever wondered how human rights abuses are documented around the world? With the sheer volume of global crises we're seeing, from civilian casualties in Syria, to ethnic cleansing in Myanmar, to the caging of children on U.S. borders, it's critical that we expose the truth in order to defend the rights of all and bring those responsible to justice. Human Rights Watch does just that. They are an independent, nonprofit organization known for their accurate fact-finding, impartial reporting, and targeted advocacy, often in partnership with local activists and human rights groups. They accept no money from any government, but rely on the support of informed, dedicated people just like you. So if human rights are important to you, and I know they are, visit hrw.org best to make a donation and support this vital work around the world. When you do, not only is your gift tax-deductible, it will be matched dollar for dollar until 2019. That means your donation will go twice as far to advance justice and defend the basic dignity of people who need it most. Again, that's hrw.org slash best, and thanks.
5: But I think the question is not whether or not anger becomes respectable. Um, I think we can venture that women's anger probably won't. But maybe the question is what what you're pointing to, Natalia, which is what Tracer is raising is, will it be galvanizing or will it be a effective form of mobilization? And I think in mm-hmm. some ways, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, but I think we can also look to the historical record and think about other moments of history in which women's rage has actually been an incredible form of organizing and, and, a, and a driver of historical change. Um, I mean, one example that comes to mind, perhaps, is women's suffrage.
6: Women's suffrage, of course, emerged from the rage of many women that, you know, they were being they're not recognized as citizens but if you think the way that 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 the that suffrage was achieved by the way mostly for white women um that was done precisely by not positioning women as angry and who were going to upset things and and who were going to upset the social order the idea there was women are so inherently virtuous and sort of you know up, an updated version of Republican small R mothers that they should have the vote because actually they'll provide forms of soothing moral suasion to the kind of rowdy world of male politics. So I think you're absolutely right, Neil, that uh, of course rage galvanized many of these act- suffrage activists, but it was not at all a part of their public positioning in the way that, like, say, the women's march, um, you know, embraced anger in a lot of ways.
7: Well, and we see that again and again, and I think it drives home the point, like, who is allowed to display rage? If you think about – um to, to move it away from the women's movement for a moment – if you think about the civil rights movement and how – enraged African Americans were and should have been. And yet, how um, do civil rights protests get shaped for a long time, um, until, you know, the mid to late 1960s, the dominant view of the civil rights movement was that it was about respectability, and about not showing rage in the face of this tremendous white racism. And in fact, some of the most iconic images of the early civil rights movement, right, is um, a a young African-American woman walking into a school while a white woman student just shouts at her with just unbelievable anger. And there's a woman's rage. Um, But the the African-American student isn't allowed to show that.
6: Yes, absolutely. And I do want to come back to conservative women's rage, because I don't want to suggest that like liberal or progressive women are the only women who have a right to legitimate rage, because I actually think that rage has been an incredibly powerful part of organizing for mm-hmm. women on the right as well. So, uh, to go back, Nikki, to your point about the civil rights movement, uh, actually one of the examples that Tracer opened with was that of Mamie Till and how there's an example of a woman who was so outraged that her son, Emmett Till, was killed in the 1950s for allegedly making a pass at a white woman. And he he was murdered by a group of white men for that, a very famous case. One of the reasons it's so famous is because she demanded out of rage that the, her son's body be sent home. And then she demanded that the coffin be pried open and to have an open casket funeral so everybody could see his mutilated face and see what white racism had done to him. Now, that to me, that's not the whole story that we get in the textbooks of um, the way female rage was a galvanizing aspect of the civil rights movement. And by the way, I think Rosa Parks was pretty pissed off too, even though that's not how she was, um, depicted. But, um, at least what Tracer says is like, there's an earlier example of the way that rage has galvanized women, been a, an important part of Political change, but been sort of quieted in our historical recollections.
5: But your point about conservative white women's rage is, I think, really an important one here—one that I've, you know, written a good bit about in my own scholarship. I'm thinking of just, you know, two big examples: Phyllis Schlafly um, and Anita Bryant, and the ways in which Mm -hmm. they. Really tapped into an anger and a resentment, um, at the way that law and culture were changing in the 1970s and 80s around questions of gender and the family and sexuality. Mm-hmm. In their writings and in their statements, they expressed a sort of anger and they, and they sought to, um, mobilize that anger and other conservative Absolutely. women to you know, as they would say, take back the nation or take back the family from the changes that feminists um, and liberals and progressives were um, seeking to make in those realms um, in those years. So I, I think that's a really important point, Natalia, because it's it's easy in, I think, the current conversation to see this as just some sort of progressive movement or that it only goes in a progressive direction.
6: Yeah, this is what I'm going to be talking about in Cape May this weekend. By the time you've listened to this, hopefully I've burned down the house in a metaphorical sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, with my, with my astute discussion of these issues across the political spectrum. What is interesting though, I think in not, I, I absolutely think that's right. And actually Tracer cited Schlafly's Power of the Positive Woman as being a key text in the book that she, in the book that she ended up writing. She didn't, I like wanted to sit her down and talk exactly about which aspects of that text inspired her and why. Because one of the things that is, I think accounts for why we don't talk about in, today's moment, you hear mostly progressives celebrating female rage. It's because, of course, to speak in broad strokes, a conservative worldview holds on to certain conservative gender ideals, which by definition don't celebrate female rage and anger. That's very much what Schlafly was trying to say with Power of the Positive Woman. She's all about blasting what she sees as angry feminists. She says, you know, you want to be called Ms. That's short for miserable, typical of those miserable women, um, as opposed to happy women who accept and embrace gender roles as they are. But by contrast, Neil, your point is so well taken. Look at any of these homemakers who were galvanized to political action by Schlafly and and her, uh, you know, contemporaries, really her mostly, and they are. Terrified and enraged that the state, that liberals, et cetera, are going to, um, you know, tear down the traditional family and their value as women as they see it. And yeah, Nikki, I mean, it's those desegregation, um, pictures. Who's in the front lines, um, yelling about busing? Go home. It's white. Angry women. So I think, you know, that's a part of this story that I think some of the rah-rah activism narratives don't like to share. But I think from what I understand, Tracer does actually do a good job of, um, of seeing that.
7: Well, and I want to turn the lens back away from the white woman yelling in that picture and back towards the black woman whose face is set in kind of a passive mask. Because one thing that we haven't talked about is the stereotype of the angry black woman mm. that has in many ways uh, created some limits or taken away some space for Black women to express anger. Black men, too. I mean, what we saw with um Barack and Michelle Obama, like neither one of them in a very enraging time had kind of the space to express anger lest they be um sort of categorized as an angry Black man or an angry Black woman, and that this racist stereotype, which has existed since the days of you know blackface and minstrel shows and Amos and Andy and those kinds of things um the stereotype of the angry black w- woman has in many ways neutered the effectiveness of black women's rage because it is then dismissed by white people as this kind of stereotypical and therefore meaningless expression by black women.
6: Undisciplined, irrational, hyper emotional. Yeah. Um, and, and I would say that that extends to men, black men in, in, in certain ways as well. But yes, it's absolutely amplified for black women and, and has limited even within the feminist movement, maybe most relevantly within the feminist movement, their ability to be full participants. I mean, there are lots of discussions, both of suffrage in the early 20s. 20th century and of the 1960s and 70s feminist movement where black women are kind of held at bay by their so-called white sisters and saying like about the particular forms of intersectional racism and misogyny that affect them. And they're told like, just hold on, you know, the movement needs stability, like calm down, even by the women who are putatively their allies. I mean, that's one of the earlier people talking about female rage in a really uh, meaningful political way is Audre Lorde, who Mm -hmm. writes about it in the 1980s. And that's exactly what she's responding to.
7: Right. And I think it's worth emphasizing, again, like there are these amazing, eloquent expressions of rage from people like Lorde, um, just that it, it doesn't always echo effectively within kind of white discourse, because it's then dismissed as as, again, emotional or racist or what have you.
0: There's something you said a couple of minutes ago about whether or not we treat the anger of non-white men, in this case, seriously. And you are saying that we don't, and it was something I was thinking about reading your book. We definitely act like we don't, but there's also a way in which I think we understand that the reasonable amount of anger for African-Americans in this country or women in this country would be so high that it's socially destabilizing.
2: Right, one of my theses in this book is that the sort of suppression of discouragement of marginalization of anger coming from non-white, non-men in the United States. It's not just accidental. It's tactical. Because we understand from our very founding that rage at injustice can, in fact, produce a revolution, can be politically destabilizing, because that is written into our DNA, And because the structure of the country fundamentally is one of minority rule in which white men, white initially landowning men, (laughs) built a country around themselves and their own power, all of its institutions, its courts, its government, its businesses, its economy, were all built around the continued dominance of white men over women, over people of color. There is the understanding that an uprising of that subjugated majority, especially because it is a majority, could itself be revolutionary. And at various times has been, right? That we have had social and political movements. We had a civil war in this country. We have had social movements that have altered our laws, the way representation works. There have been moments, re- truly revolutionary moments in this country that have often been powered by the anger of that subjugated majority. And so there's an understanding that that anger has political consequence and that's part of why it's discouraged. One of the things I argue in the book is that anger is a communicative tool, right? If women are discouraged from expressing their anger for the reasons that we've talked about, we're we are told from birth that it makes us sound crazy. People will take us less seriously if we speak from anger. It will undercut our point. We'll seem hysterical. We'll seem over-emotional. We'll be kind of ugly, unattractive. Nobody will want to be with us. It's unpleasant. It's corrosive. We're sent all these messages which seem kind of aesthetic, right, or strategic. But in fact, if that works to quiet us, if it works to quiet women, then it has a political impact. Because when women do get angry, they become audible to each other. And when they become audible to each other, that becomes a tool of connection. You can find agreement. And when you find agreement, you can theoretically work toward coalition. And if you have coalition, you can organize. And so a lot of the history of women organizing, whether around abolition or in the labor movement, that comes itself from instances in which they're put together in the same space. When women are kept in homes, right, when women are mostly in domestic roles um, and don't have a lot of space to communicate with each other, that you have one set of conditions. Then – because of industrialization and more women moving into schools, factories, mills, and coming together through religious revivals, you have women speaking to each other, potentially sharing the things that they're frustrated about. And then you have the birth of some of these very disruptive political and social movements. And you can see that in a very contemporary way. The the view I got of it was when I traveled in the summer of 2017 to the Atlanta suburbs Where there were suburban white women who had been previously not engaged politically, who in the wake of the 2016 election had begun to organize around, in that case, the John Ossoff campaign, although there had been other campaigns already that they'd organized around. A few of them had been running for office themselves. They were working on the Ossoff campaign. And they, many of them, described to me such similar stories. They'd been living in these neighborhoods that were red and that they assumed to just be conservative. They had left or liberal politics. They were Democrats, but they never opened their mouths about it because they understood it would be sort of socially disruptive, uncouth. They wouldn't put a sign out because it would cause trouble. And so they just kept quiet about their politics. Like so many other people, they assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win the election because, you know, she had all the power and she was inevitable. And Donald Trump's bad behavior and sexism and racism would be disqualifying and she was going to win. And when she didn't win, they kind of exploded in shock and anger. And many of them described it as a coming out process, the first time that they'd ever really made noise about their politics. Well, when they made noise, they heard a woman down the street who was also making noise. And they realized that they had a neighbor who they'd perhaps lived next to for decades thinking that they were isolated in their political ideas. And yet, when they finally exploded with frustration and anger in the wake of Donald Trump's victory, those neighbors became audible to each other and they literally joined organizing groups together. They joined Indivisible. They, they made a group called the Liberal Moms of Roswell and Cobb Counties. They started canvassing, registering voters, fundraising, learning about their local elections and candidates in ways they never had. They became civic participants in ways they hadn't had. In the past, they went from political apathy to active political organizers coming up with new ideas for how to target younger voters in the community who weren't voting yet. They began to make active political change. I actually just spoke to a colleague who got back this weekend who was down reporting on those same women in the lead up to Stacey Abrams, the election in November for governor in which Stacey Abrams is running would become the first African-American woman ever to be a governor in the United States. And a colleague of mine who was just down talking to those same groups of women told me just yesterday, they're completely just as energized as they were in the summer of 2017. And many of them described this as a kind of new life and new kinds of connections they'd found together. That was because they'd been angry in a way that allowed them to hear each other and then begin planning together.
0: Today's episode is sponsored by Madison Reed. Since 2013, hundreds of thousands of women have tried and loved Madison Reed for the way they've revolutionized at-home hair color. Amy Everett founded the company, naming it after her daughter, because the status quo of hair color options either left much to be desired or cost way too much. Madison Reed offers the quality of a salon, the convenience and affordability of at-home hair color, and an ammonia-free formula with ingredients you can feel good about. With beautiful, multi-dimensional hair color, you'll look like you just came from the salon, but you'll have saved a whole lot of time and money because Madison Reed color kits are delivered to your door on your schedule for under $25. Bucks. To get started, find your perfect shade at MadisonRead.com, and they have a special offer for you as a best of luck listener. Right now, you can get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit when you use the promo code LEFT. That's MadisonRead.com and use the promo code LEFT.
8: Brittany, you're angry and proud. Absolutely. All right, good. And you told the Washington Post about your new book that eloquent rage is a political response for black women. So let's start with the basics. Tell us about this idea of eloquent rage.
9: What does it mean and how do you apply it?
10: So eloquent rage is a concept that I came to because of one of my students who saw me out one day after the class had ended um, and she said, I used to love to listen to you lecture because your lectures were filled with rage, but it was like the most eloquent rage ever. Oh, wow. And I immediately was like, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. Right. Because that's <laughs> the thing and that was my immediate response because I, she was a black woman, but I assumed that I was being saddled with the angry black woman stereotype. And she said, Brittany, you know, you're angry. And in that moment, I was called out and I was called out by another black girl. So it's one thing when my white colleagues might try to say, why are you so mad? Why are you so angry? They're engaged in a sort of stereotypical kind of project that I resist. But it was a moment of truth telling and it was transformative for me because what I learned in that moment was one, that she saw me. So I wasn't doing a good job of hiding the fact that I was mad as hell. (laughs) (laughs) And two, I learned that the reason that I had been uncomfortable with anger is because I had always seen it used in destructive ways in my own home life, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't have a healthy relationship to it. And what she helped me to understand was that my rage made me better at what I do. It was something that she could authentically connect to within the institution, um, within a predominantly white institution as a black student, but also that it powered the the material. So it didn't make me bad as an instructor. It made me a better instructor. And so the idea that the thing that I feel like our country produces for black folks, this, you know, never ending sense of rage that I could use it to help me to be better at the work of trying to change the world was very useful because it started me on a journey of getting comfortable with anger and not feeling like it would destroy me from the inside out.
9: Becomes her, why this book and why now? Why did you write this?
11: I wrote it as a, an almost uh, state of the union for how women move through the stages of their lives in an, in an atmosphere that's often quite hostile and that elicits negative emotional responses that are not particularly welcome, and that affects our personal lives, our professional lives, and our politics. And so, honestly, anger became the vehicle through which to talk about those issues specifically after the election. Anger was just so palpable in the build-up to the election. Um, it continues to be today. Um, and so it seemed like a, a good filter through which to look at the broader issues.
9: Mm. What, what, what do you think when there are these calls for civility? And it seems like that's the way to police the anger of resistance, uh, while of course there are no su- there's no such policing on the other side. What, what, how do you respond to that when people say that in politics the problem is not, um uh, that things are too, um, that the problem is not apathy or whatnot. The problem is that things are too polarized and we need stability as a way to respond to that?
11: Yeah, I mean, I think there's several things. One is, My, 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 I hear this, and I've heard this for months now in the build up to, to just having this book released is that we don't need more rage in the world. You know, there's plenty of anger in the, in the United States. And what I find interesting about that and its relation to this notion of civility is that there's not, I'm not saying make more anger. What we're saying is the anger is here. And if you can say that people need to be more civil, it's, um, really my response is well that's nice for you but in fact what we're trying to say here very clearly is that we're angry about very specific things and that it's time to really stop and listen to what we're saying and the call for civility as you say it often comes down to a sort of tone policing like oh don't be rude don't be don't be um, vulgar there's a lot that is implied about, especially for women, cursing, right? Um, so I don't, I don't take a lot of store in that, especially when the incivility is so prominent, as you say, so evident on the other side.
9: Mm. And there's this whole history, of course, of particularly policing the anger of women and re- referring it, referring to it in ways that are uh, that, that that diminutize the issues that they're trying to raise.
11: Yeah, I mean, when you, when you, um, minimize women's anger, when you trivialize their mode of expression, uh, you at the same time sort of simultaneously do that to the content of what they're saying. And, um, that happens, it really, and I tried to cite as, as much as I could in the book studies that show how early in life this begins, how early the mischaracterization and recharacterization of girls and women's speech and feelings um, happen. So very often people will attribute sadness to a woman who's, anger, who's angry because the idea that she's angry is quite transgressive. Mm. But the idea, now, the idea that she's sad is not.
9: Now, you know, this is a sports and politics podcast yeah. so I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you if you could connect the, the general thesis in your book with everything that happened in the response with uh, Serena Williams and the policing of her anger at the U.S. Open.
11: yeah, yeah, I mean, it's amazing because, you know, you had this few few minutes, really, of sort of catalytic emotion and tension that escalated and escalated. And for some people watching, the escalation was just obvious. It was evident. It was something that we're familiar with in our own lives, and, and it was... Maybe obviously not obvious to other people who were like, well, she's just a tennis player, and men get angry all the time, and they get sanctioned, and more men have been sanctioned in in the sport than women, um, with no reference to proportionality. But we'll ignore that for right now. But you know, I think it's it's clear, for example, in the fact that she's been levied the largest U.S. Open fine for verbal abuse ever. I mean, she was she was fined ten thousand dollars, which is kind of godsmacking given. The very evident displays of explosive sort of and threatening and, um, obscene outbursts that are in all of these compilations of men tennis players that are running around. But, you know, I think that the bigger conversation about how black women's anger is perceived and treated is the most important thing coming out of this, this episode.
9: Can you speak more about that, please?
11: Well, I mean, there are all of these myths and tropes about angry black women, particularly in American culture, but they extend to places like the UK and, and and really globally. But this idea that black women are threatening and vulgar and ugly and just naturally, quote unquote, angrier than other people and hostile and defensive. And the origins of that stereotype come from some pretty racist media uh Amos and Andy, for example, I think had characters of men that pretended to be black women acting in these ways. And um it means that in daily life black women are constantly having to be self aware and aware about how they speak, how they look, how they move, how how they present themselves, even in situations where righteous indignation or self defense are necessary. And that starts really early, I mean, it starts in kindergarten, uh, where we see that uh, you know young black girls are far more likely to be expelled and suspended, and by the time they're, I think, in high school, they're five times more likely to be disciplined and expelled. And some of that just comes from the fact that as young black girls, they can never really meet the standards of sort of a, a white, fragile femininity that is the norm in in many parts of the country.
8: Congratulations on your new book, *Good and Mad: The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger*. So, Rebecca, what do women have, or do women have anything to be angry about in America? No, we're good. You're good. We're good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. It's been fun. Thank you so much right. for tuning in, everybody. This is a... um, It, it is really timely that this book would come out, um, not just after the midterms, but but really after the 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 Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Mm-hmm. It felt like. That was a moment in America where many women's voices were being heard and many women were saying, hey, this story sounds familiar to me. Mm-hmm. We are never heard. What are you talking about when you say the power of women's anger?
2: Well, in part, I'm looking at the history of women's anger as it has been expressed within political context in this country and how that anger has often been the catalyst for some of the social movements that have transformed the country from abolition and suffrage to the labor movement, obviously to the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement and the women's movement of the 1960s and 70s. At the beginning of so many of those movements, there were angry women, women angry at injustice, at inequality. But we're not very often told the story of their anger as having been righteous. We are told that women's anger is laughable, marginal, hysterical, women of color's anger is treated as volatile and dangerous, threatening. Um, We're not encouraged to look at women's anger as something that brings us political progress, but it really has over and over again in this country. And so part of the book is an attempt to kind of tell that story and acknowledge the political consequences of women who are angry at inequality.
8: It is an interesting time to see this conversation start because it you know, you, you have the midterms where we have now, I think it's over a hundred women in the house, right? Mm-hmm. Nine governorships went to women. Mm-hmm. So women have come out in full force saying, We're running, we want to be a part of running this country and making the change for ourselves.
2: And a lot of their candidacies stem from their anger. In the in the early months of the Trump administration after the after the twenty sixteen election, um when we first began to get a sense of how many women were gonna step up and run for office on federal levels, on state and local levels, so many of them said I'm furious. I'm angry at what just happened. I'm angry at my lack of representation. I'm angry that this guy who admitted to grabbing women by the pussy can then go on and be elected president. And I am going to do something to change this. And so, so many of these candidacies stem from anger. A lot of them were at the Women's March. It was a protest that was born in part of fury, a desire to like hold up big profane signs and express how angry women were. And people didn't necessarily take it seriously, even though it was the biggest single day political protest in this Country's history, they said, "Oh, it was the hats, right? right the hats, it was the pink hats, the
12: pink
8: hats."
2: And um, and I look back at how people talked about that march the next day on in mainstream political coverage and sort of said, "Oh, but you know, they they had the the big gathering with the hats, but mm-hmm. what are they going to really do? Well, they ran for office in unprecedented numbers, and yesterday, women won, women of color won seats." <laughs> Record numbers. And that changes something that's always been broken in this country. It doesn't fix it. But we have always lived with this promise that we live in a representative democracy. But Uh in fact, you know, our government institutions have not represented us and they still don't just, you know, it's still it's still less than 25 percent. Don't worry. We're not anywhere close to actual representation. But um, um, but. That kind of thing, new new faces, new models for what leadership might look like, that actually does begin to get us moderately closer to something like the, the founding promise that has always gone unmet.
8: When when you look at the way women's anger is met in 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 many conversations, there is a, a, a disconnect between anger when it comes from a man and then anger when it comes from a woman. As you say, like you know, I, when I was watching the Kavanaugh hearings, for instance. I remember thinking to myself, Dr. Ford was composed and she was in a really tough situation. I thought to myself, if she had reacted the way Brett Kavanaugh did, berating people and screaming and shouting, she would have been dragged out of there and people would have been like, yo, this bitch is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> people would have said things like that. They would have, like, that's, that's the notion around... We
2: can't even imagine yes. it. Like, the only, you imagine her screaming, I, I like beer, and, and it's like... <laughs> <laughs> no. Or, or, t- or turning the questions back on, you know, how exactly. he said to Klobuchar, you know, well, have you ever blocked and blacked out? Can you imagine right. her turning those questions back on the Senate Judiciary? She would have been arrested. So then
8: how do how do women then use that anger in a way? Because, we, like, I, I won't deny that. I've, I've also had to reframe how I think of it in my head, where I go like, oh, yeah, like, it's just people get angry. People can use their anger in positive ways. But how do you then move it forward for women? How do you then say to women, like, how this is how we use our anger in a way that doesn't get blocked by men?
2: Part of the trick is not telling women how to express or not express their anger differently it's doing what you just said which is you've had to adjust your ears to how you hear women's anger so we can't necessarily work our way through a system that doesn't make room for our fury right but we can start to listen to the fury of other women differently and understand it as valid we can start to listen for women's anger and think oh wait maybe that's pointing me towards something that's broken and needs to be fixed instead of hearing she's crazy right and that's part, of, that's part of the message.
8: In, in, in the book, there are so many interesting uh, points that you, you, you draw from history. Um, and you talk about what's happening to us today. When we talk about Hillary Clinton, and you look at the passages in the book about her, there is an interesting dilemma that Hillary faced. And that was, if Hillary was angry, people said she's annoying, she's irritating... If she wasn't angry, they said she doesn't have the passion. Mm-hmm. So then it does it become, you know, a catch-22 for women who are in positions of power?
2: It has been historically. That's one of the reasons that we need to we need to think differently about how we're hearing, receiving, and responding to women's voices raised in passion or dissent. Hillary was running against two men. Um, in the Democratic primary and then in the general election, who used anger beautifully. They were able to channel the anger of their supporters, and they were credited for it. Uh, but every time she spoke too close to a microphone, somebody said, stop yelling at us. And at the same time, she faced this criticism. She's not really, she doesn't have any of the real emotion to connect right. with her voters. So this is a bind that women have been in for a long time. If they yell, they're seen as off-putting, especially if they're in positions of power mm-hmm. or challenging men. For positions of power, they're seen as castrating, their anger discredits them, and at the same time, if they don't show it, then how can we know that that we're to take them seriously about what they say? These are the systems we— again. We out, part of the book is outlining these patterns and then saying we actually need to change the system. So we need to start listening to the voices of women differently and, and engaging different models. And I think we are. I think some of the candidates who won yesterday are women who've been very open about what they've been angry about, that their dissatisfactions have led them to seek elected office. Right. And that's something that's beginning to change our models for how we can hear women's voices and understand them as politically serious.
8: There's always been one dilemma for America in and around its voting, and that has been that women's voices are heard, but then in instances like with Donald Trump, or even in the midterms, as we saw yesterday, Mm -hmm. you have women voters being the reason that people like DeSantis get into powers. And white women let's specifically... Like, yeah, let's be specific. Like that, it's that, white women. Right. White yes. women have now been identified as a very powerful voting bloc. So, for instance, with Brian Kemp, white women outvoted white men.
2: According to these exit polls. Now, right. that is a shocking metric. I mean, we, I want to make sure that... They,
8: no, but I'm saying, it, okay, but even right. if it, but in, in Florida, they go white women voted white, for DeSantis. As you, long
2: you, as we have been tracking these things, and from before we've been tracking these things... White women have very often voted on behalf of white patriarchal power structures and, the, and conservative politics. White women, a majority of white women have voted for Republicans in every presidential election except two right. since 1952. and. One of the things that we have to acknowledge in this country, we are a country that is built around a white patriarchy in which white men have, from the founding have been afforded economic, political, public, social and sexual power. Right. And other people have been barred from it. White women, via their associations with white men, have enjoyed that proximal power and thus are incentivized to defend it, to uphold it. They benefit from white supremacy and they are, many of them, dependent on patriarchy, which they are then moved to support politically and socially. <laughs> this is a long-standing reality that we need to be more open about. It's not that we're suddenly gonna persuade those conservative women to give up their affiliations right. uh, to the Republican Party, to conservative politics, and to white patriarchal power structures, but we need to figure out the ways that the white women who are angry on behalf of a more progressive and more inclusive future, can do the work of expanding electorate, the electorate looking to women of color for leadership in terms of how to go forward, acknowledging that members of their demographic are in some ways compromised. Right. And and ways in which the white women, in which white women can become angry in progressive ways that wind up getting us to a better place.
8: That's an interesting idea that you just brought up there real quick before I let you go. The idea that women of color, black women specifically in America, have been at the forefront of so many movements. From the beginning. And, you know, we saw with, like, the Roy Moore elections, you saw that black women as a bloc have always been focused and progressively minded. And so what you're saying then is white women need to take a cue from black women. How do you begin that conversation? And is there a disconnect between white women who are saying like, oh, we're the angry ones, we're taking this, and black women saying like, no, we've been angry, we've got this. Oh, yeah. (laughs)
2: Yes. (laughs) Yes, there is a disconnect. There's, There's anger. And I believe that that anger between potential allies needs to be expressed, and I'm not the first to believe this is what audrey lord was writing about in the in the 1980s that the anger about racism within a women's movement must be expressed if we're to move forward and and be productive and generative in terms of where we want to go and for and form more solid coalitions but it is absolutely true that black women who have seen no incentive from white patriarchy. They don't get patriarchy and they don't get white supremacy. Right. And that has, to some degree, permitted them to be the groundbreaking thinkers, organizers, leaders of so many progressive movements. And yes, when white women get woken up, as they have over the past two years, Mm -hmm. that's necessary, that's correct white women should be angry about inequity, not just that they experience, but that other vulnerable people around them experience. But there is a tendency, because they have more power, to come in and appropriate and, and behave as though maybe they, we, I I
8: am a white woman. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. Stop the interview. Yeah, we, uh,
2: uh, invented anger. Right. <laughs> right. That we need to, we, that's part of what we need to talk about. No, no. We did not invent it. We did not create it. We did not create protest. And in fact, it is crucial that we look to those who have been angry, active, progressive, and revolutionary before us for cues, direction, and leadership as we move into the future. And that's part of what happened yesterday. Look at the women of color who were elected yesterday. That, that, that's one step. That's, that's, the, that's one step. We need to look at transforming our political parties and, and our activist coalitions and looking to women of color for leadership.
0: We've just heard clips today, starting with Start Making Sense, talking with Rebecca Traister, author of Good and Mad, about the anger that helped birth the country. Angie Koiro on In Deep spoke with Soraya Shamali, author of Rage Becomes Her, about the anger dynamics at play in the Kavanaugh hearings. Past Present discussed some historical examples of political organizing around women's rage. Ezra Klein spoke with Rebecca Traister also about the power of women's rage as a seed for political organizing. In The Thick, in discussion with Brittany Cooper, author of Eloquent Rage, got the backstory on the title of her book and how her rage gives her power. Edge of Sports Radio interviewed Soraya Shamali about the policing of women's anger and the recent example of Serena Williams. And finally, we just heard Rebecca Traister on The Daily Show in the wake of the midterm elections discussing how women continue to reshape America. Members will be getting a bonus episode with a couple of additional clips that explore the dynamics and political effects of women's anger, one exploring another example of the anger double standard, similar to the Kavanaugh hearings, that of Hillary Clinton being called in to testify for the Benghazi hearings and having her one instance of very brief frustration used against her by the right, and another clip that explores sort of more philosophically ideas of how accusing someone of being angry is really just another way of dismissing their concerns rather than addressing them. To hear all of that, to cast a weekly vote on what upcoming topics you want to hear on the show, and for other details about supporting the show by being a patron, visit patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. You can find that link in the show notes on the device you're using to listen, which is also where you can find links to each of today's segments for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you.
13: Yeah, my name is Cindy, and I live in Ambridge, Pennsylvania, 13 miles outside of Pittsburgh, Squirrel Hill. In the fall of 2016, Trump came to Ambridge, and I was sitting on my porch, and they had their mega hats on, and I had been listening to his rhetoric, and I was wondering, this man cannot be elected president with with what he says. And now I'm sitting here on my back porch and uh, David Urban who is on CNN a lot um, he actually came to Ambridge with the Van Jones show and did a segment here also but um, my heart goes out to all the people in the United States who believe Donald Trump's rhetoric and it's sad to me to think that they can believe it my own sister voted for him and I have a hard time talking with her and I I keep calm, but um, what he's doing is definitely stoking a cold civil war. The radicalized Fox News, they radicalized people, and these poor people in in Squirrel Hill who have been killed, it's just a shame. Um, he's taking people into an all, alternative reality. I'm 64 years old, and uh, I live in Ambridge, and um, I just can't believe this is happening. I just don't understand in my heart how people can believe such rhetoric and I'm sad and I thank you for your show and I will keep listening this is the first time I listen to your show and uh I appreciate your words of wisdom and um all I can say is uh we got to get people out there to vote in 2020 and uh I hope Robert Mueller comes up with something maybe we won't have to vote for him in 2020 But uh, my prayers are to everybody. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, people who believe in civility. And uh, thank you so much for being on the air. I appreciate your words. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.
12: This is Jeff. I'm calling you from Charlotte. This message is in reference to Jill from Connecticut. She mentioned about Outvote. She mentioned that most of her friends are in their 40s and 50s, and most of those friends had a positive reaction when she sent a text to them regarding outvote. And then she mentioned that when she went on her other page, I believe it was Tumblr or something similar to that, when she mentioned to them most of these people were in their late teens and early to mid-20s, they were rather offended that, they use terms like, how dare you hack into my voting history? How dare I go and bully my friends? And what what's happening is it's a generational divide. The 40s and 50s are Gen Xers. They're also more established voters. So they've probably discussed with each other in the past of who they're voting for. and probably don't really care whether or not anybody really knows who they support. Whereas you're talking younger, non established voters in their late teens and early twenties who were also brought up to be protected. They're told not to bully. But most of all, most of all, most of all, they always tell them and they told us this too when we were younger, you keep your votes to yourself and you avoid conflict. And that's the reason why these younger people were reacting the way they were. I guarantee you when they get a little bit older, they'll have a different response. Now, on the other hand, I will say that there's a group of people who are a little bit older who probably don't like the idea of you tapping into their voting history if you've never discussed it with them. That's something else that, you know, maybe I'd, I'd suggest maybe to look into. But overall, I... I appreciate hearing somebody else's view and I thank Jay for sharing OutVote and I'd like to hear other people's responses too. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can simply record a message at 202-999-3991. A couple of comments today. First of all, I have a quick addition to today's episode. I just finished reading the newest book by one of my favorite authors, You Yuval Noah Harari. His new book is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And in it, there's this little passage that is not about women's anger, but I think still speaks to the tensions being discussed in today's episode. So in this portion of the book that I'm pulling just a quick quote from, he's talking about artificial intelligence. And his premise is that... Our fears of artificial intelligence, not not just uh, robots that take over our jobs, but like, you know, robots that take over the world, Uh, our fears of that kind of artificial intelligence are not really looking in the right direction. And so because our fears of artificial intelligence sort of look in the wrong direction, our pop culture and movies made on the subject – tends to be sort of divorced from reality. So that's what he's talking about. And then he has this quote, and he says, Many movies about artificial intelligence are so divorced from scientific reality that one suspects they are just allegories of completely different concerns. Thus, the 2015 movie Ex Machina seems to be about an AI expert who falls in love with a female robot only to be duped and manipulated by her. But in reality, this is not a movie about the human fear of intelligent robots. It is a movie about the male fear of intelligent women, and in particular, the fear that female liberation might lead to female domination. Whenever you see a movie about an AI in which the AI is female and the scientist is male, it's probably a movie about feminism rather than cybernetics. So I thought that was a great little insight. I, I saw Ex Machina a couple of years ago and, you know, enjoyed it. I recommend watching it, but I, I certainly didn't see it necessarily through the feminist perspective. I, I sort of took it more at at face value and... Uh, You know, I I know that, you know, for those of you who have seen it, we can sort of discuss amongst ourselves. uh, I I knew that it went a little beyond AI and and is sort of asking questions like, you you know, what is consciousness? What is uh, what is humanity? Um, What type of entity deserves compassion or or self-determination? But uh, to be honest, I didn't think of it. The way he did through through a feminist perspective and uh, and and those gender roles at play. So for obvious reasons, I thought it played into today's topic. And now finally, I know you guys have been waiting on pins and needles for me to give you my thoughts on privacy. I, I brought this up a, a week or a week and a half ago, and the honest truth was. I asked your opinion about privacy on issues like voting records, uh, transparent payrolls in corporations, and public tax return information, the way Finland releases everyone's tax return information publicly. And I asked for your thoughts on all of that because I, I, I had a seed, a, a bit of thought on privacy, but I, I sort of needed time and and maybe other people's thoughts to help jog me along a little bit and unfortunately haven't really gotten any responses on that and and you know honestly i don't blame you because it took me a while to think through it and come to a conclusion i felt okay about sharing so i sort of suspect a lot of people had a similar thought so now a week and a half later Here's what I've come up with, at least. And, and what took me a while to get around to, to, to wrap my mind around, is that there's not just one type of privacy. So I'm going to talk about three types of privacy. There are at least three. There may be more. But I've broken it down to government privacy privacy. Any type of law and order privacy where where the argument to relinquish your privacy is to be better protected. So police, spying them, uh, tracking your whereabouts, them uh, tracking phone calls or your contacts and uh, anything along those lines. Government, law and order privacy. Secondarily, there's corporate privacy and that's corporations that track us in all the ways they track us almost exclusively with a goal of being better at selling us stuff. And then there's a third type of privacy. So those first two, we talk about all the time, and we're really strong advocates for privacy in those two realms. But there's this third realm that doesn't get talked about almost at all, which I'm calling social privacy, which is essentially what your friends and neighbors know about you and and this comes in all kinds of different brands but i think that things like public voting records or transparent payrolls or public tax return information falls generally in the same category As things like just what your neighbors know about you, that if they know your name, if they know your family, if you know the names of their family, if they know what job you have or where you work or what time you generally come home and and all of the sort of social bonding aspects of life that come along with people around you knowing stuff about you and you knowing stuff about them. So, In all three of these areas of of privacy, there are trade-offs. So as I said, in exchange for sacrificing some level of privacy, governments offer safety. Corporations offer convenience and better service. And and we make these trade-offs every day. We decide to use companies like Facebook and Google and Amazon, but we also advocate for these kinds of trade-offs when we vote for law and order politicians or we answer pollsters' questions saying that we, yeah, we think that the government should do some amount of spying or some amount of prying into people's lives in the hopes of catching criminals. So we we recognize there's a trade-off there. But we make trade-offs with our social privacy as well. And I think that we understand that trade-off a lot less, and that trade-off has to do with social bonds. So when we look at these, these issues of voting history, which can be used by an app like Outvote that can connect you with your network and help you encourage them to vote, or the other example I brought up was transparent payrolls, which increases trust Within a corporation and, and makes the working environment better because there is less secrecy, there is more assurance of fairness, and those types of things. And then the example from Finland, with tax returns being public, the people who live there, you know, some say it's an invasion of privacy, but others like pretty much advocate that. The fact that we do this is a big reason why we are able to maintain policies that keep society fairly equal. If we were to see the wealth divide growing too much, it would be very transparent in these these tax returns, and we would want to do something about it. And and so I think that trade-offs in that realm are a lot better for society, these social privacy trade-offs. Uh, should, should probably be a, a lot more lax than our feelings about government and corporate privacy. And I think the problem that that people run into, it, it's sort of the problem, same same as with money. If you have no money, getting more money absolutely makes you happier. But there is a point at which getting more money doesn't make you happier anymore. And the same with privacy. If you have no privacy in this social, private scenario, then getting more privacy, will make you better off and happier. But there's a point at which that stops being a benefit and actually starts being a hindrance. So, you know, we're social creatures who benefit from knowing our neighbors and being influenced by them and and them knowing us, us knowing them. And so in essence, you know, humans trade social privacy for community bonds. The less privacy you have, the stronger those community bonds, the more privacy, the less community... And so I think the key is finding the right balance. And right now we're going through this epidemic of, on one hand, fetishizing individualism and privacy, and we're experiencing widespread loneliness. So I, I think of these three different subcategories of privacy, you know, we, we need to address them differently. So ultimately, we end up taking some degree of a middle path in all of these areas, trying trying to balance privacy versus the, the benefits of giving away that privacy. But the evidence seems to indicate that we would be better off pushing the government and corporations away a bit, but actually pulling our friends and our neighbors closer. And and so I think it is that general concept that makes things like voting history, transparent payrolls, public tax return information, that type of of information that at first glance seems like the same thing as government spying or seems like the same thing as, as, as corporate tracking, but it's different. I think it's fundamentally different and, and the trade-offs are different. And, uh, and I think those fall under that, that social privacy banner in, in a way that, that we're, we're better off being more lax in that area and encouraging more social bonds, more connection with our community, because those are the kinds of things that humans need to thrive and i think it translates to a certain degree even when scaled up to the the level of your job the level of your uh, larger social community or even at the country level the way finland's public tax return information seems to affect them at the national level so that's what i came up with and if that got your wheels turning you have comments to share, I would love to hear them. The number again, 202-999-3991, and that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on Apple Podcasts and Facebook to help others find the show. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in